Welcome, everybody. And I'm glad you're here. I had a um, beautiful time, a moving time, uh, an illuminating time, uh, intellectually and emotionally curious time preparing for this class today. So I just wanted to thank you for giving me this opportunity to dive into Torah myself. And then I hope that I can communicate uh, what I learned to you and we can do what we always do, which is build on each other's insights. And uh, so thank you. And I want to begin today by uh, um, reciting the Torah blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav b'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, source of life. Our God, who has given us the mitzvot, including the mitzvah of engaging with the words of Torah. So, it rained really hard at my house last night, um, which was good. Everything was getting brown already. So, I hope everything's good with you. And now we're going to have some, in our area, we're going to have some dry, cool air blowing in. So, I feel very fortunate. And I think so does our garden. Okay, so this week's Torah portion is Baha'alotcha, when you raise up the lights. And it is Book of Numbers, chapter 8 through chapter 12. And there is an awful lot in this portion this week. And even though we have limited time, First, I want to focus on something, on a piece that I think is just as wonderful for our intellectual curiosity. And then I want to focus on another piece that is uh, much more about our neshamas, about our hearts and souls. Uh, but being the amateur uh, historian that I am, I, I love some, some of the historical insights that we can get also from looking at the Torah. So I'm going to try to squeeze in both today. Now, I just want to share where we are in the flow of the Torah. So the first 10 chapters, two of which are part of this portion of the Book of Numbers, are still preparatory for the wandering into the wilderness. They are still at Mount Sinai. They are still getting ready for their journey. And so in the beginning of this portion, um, is a description of how the Levites, the tribe of Levi, is dedicated to divine service. And then it goes on to describe, once again, which it did in Exodus, but now it's kind of preparing us again, that the way the children of Israel are meant to travel is that a divine cloud hovers over them. Um, uh, that a divine cloud hovers over them and when the cloud lifts and protects them, remember it's a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to give them protection and warmth in the nighttime and in the daytime protection and um, uh, safety in the daytime. And so that's the image of both the cloud and the fire. <clears throat> and the instructions are, when the cloud lifts, it is time for the children of Israel to break camp. And whenever the, they are to follow the cloud, and whenever it rests, they are to make camp there. It says, no matter whether it's a day or a week or a month, that's their marching instructions. So again, this is, uh, for me, deeply metaphorical of trusting in the looking for guidance and trusting when, where does, you know, an external cloud, okay, that's a good image. Where do you find your, the guidance that tells you when it's time to break camp, when it's time to move, when those sort of like, um, 
rumblings or simmerings of intuition start to move us and we know we have to listen and what it means to trust that guidance and follow it, even though it's not our exact plan, even though it's not the map of our career we laid out for ourselves or the trajectory we hoped to go, that's the journey of faith. That's what the journey through the wilderness represents. And so that's the cloud description. And then it prepares us even more. It describes these silver trumpets, which were created in order to summon them. The cloud would rise, they'd blow the trumpets, and it would mean it's time to break camp. So there's this description. And then in chapter 10, it says finally, and we'll put up a text soon, but I'm just giving you this kind of the run up to it, that in the second year from leaving Egypt, on the 20th day of the second month, second month being the month after Passover. So they've been encamped at Mount Sinai for a year. It says the cloud lifted. And then there's an orderly description of how they broke camp and set out on their way. Um, and then in one more beautiful piece, Moses asks his father-in-law Jethro to please come with them. And we haven't talked about this in this cycle of Torah readings, but Jethro has been Moses' his mentor. Uh, and also his, shall we say, his good father, who was his other father that he grew up with, Pharaoh. And so Jeth Moses learns about sharing leadership from Jethro, who's his father-in-law. But Jethro says, no, I'm going home now. You're ready. You know, my mentorship has served you. You're ready to go. Okay, so now I'm gonna ask Gwen to put up the text for where we've arrived at. Chapter 10, verse 33, there it is. Thanks so much, Gwen. Hope you can all see it. And this is gonna be a little um, scholarly excursion. Um, and so Jethro goes home and the next line is, and they departed from the Mount of the Lord three days journey. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of God was upon them by day when they went out from camp. And now here, if you look on the right, you'll see that there's a uh, symbol a letter called a final noon. You want to point that with the cursor? Yeah. And then there's another one at the end of those two verses. Not the Samach, but there. Exactly. So those two nuns, those two letters, finals nuns, um, put brackets around um, this, uh, just one sec. There we go. Put brackets around uh, this phrase. And this phrase will be familiar to anyone who has spent time in a synagogue service on a, when we take out the Torah. Vayehi bin Ha'aron vayomer Moshe. Kuma Adonai v'yafutsu oivecha v'yanusu misanecha mipanecha. That's what we say when we take the Torah out of the ark. Vayehi bin Ha'aron vayomer Moshe. And that means, and when it was time for the ark to set forward, Moses would say, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those our enemies flee before, before us, those who hate us. And then when we're putting the Torah away in the ark, uvnu chayomar, shuva adonai revavot, alfei Yisrael. And when the um, uh, ark rested, and that's the liturgy for returning the Torah to the ark. When it rested, he said, return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. Okay, so this passage was so important uh, that it, um, it uh, became part of our 
uh, liturgy whenever we take the Torah out of the ark, whenever we return it to the ark. Okay, so here's a little excursion um, into uh, historical scholarship. And then, uh, and then uh, I'm, I'll welcome your questions and then we'll move into the next chapter, which is chapter 11 of Numbers. The curiosity are these letter nuns that sit at either end of this passage. In Torah, as so, those of you know uh, who studied with me, I'm fascinated by these scribal anomalies. What is this? What's it doing here? And it becomes a kind of scholarly um, detective um, project to try to figure out why this ancient scribal tradition puts these markings into the text that we wouldn't know about and requires, you know, fortunately there's a lot of, lot of great scholars out there going back many, many, many centuries who, who explore these questions. And what I wanted to share with you is that the upside down nuns, they're called nun hafufim, sort of the letter nun that's been turned upside down. In this typesetting of this version that Gwen has, they've used a final nun. But if you look in the Torah scroll, you'll see what appears to be a backwards nun. Um, and also, if you look in some Torah scrolls, you'll see what appears to be a backwards, not just nun, in other words, think of the letter C backwards, but a backwards letter uh, sigma, you know, like an E um, with um, um, uh, a, a bend in it. Uh, so depending on the scribal tradition, it looks like many things. So I was looking up, what do the backward nuns mean? And boy, can you imagine how much lore there is about that now? It's like, hey, here's an opportunity to describe what those backward nuns mean. And it goes, oh, it's beautiful. So many beautiful teachings about the letter nun and about... And so then I looked into not the, um, not the uh, interpretive tradition, but the biblical scholarship tradition. Oh, look what Gwen did for us. Thank you so much. Um, can you make it any larger? Uh, maybe that's about it. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Great. Here's how the backward nuns appear in uh, Torah script. Um, and uh, um, is it a nun or is it a... What is that? So we always talk about it as the letter nun. Thanks so much, Gwen. But um, Shaul Lieberman, a very famous 20th century scholar of, of biblical studies, um, actually um, discovered that in the Alexandrian Hellenistic tradition, in other words, the Jews of this, of the, when the Torah was, when the Torah's scribal tradition was developing, it happened in the Hellenistic world, meaning the Greek-speaking world. And so even though our sacred texts that we've come down to us and the rabbinic texts are in Hebrew and Aramaic, they all not only knew Greek, but were, um, were participating in Greek culture because that was the overarching culture of the, those centuries. And it turns out that when there was a piece that was considered to be um, here, let me, let me get you the right source. I have it right in front of me here. Um, Hellenism in ancient Palestine, Jewish Palestine. Um, the, uh, the, the, in the sigma signal, symbol, the Greek letter sigma, which is kind of looks like that nun, um, was used to indicate a separate section or a section that was out of place in the text. It was some kind of Hellenistic um, scribal custom to indicate 
maybe like quotation marks, maybe like uh, we're questioning why this passage is in here. And it appears that that very same tradition moved into Jewish scribal tradition because Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, who was the leading Jewish authority of the second century, late second century, says that the reason these marks are here is because this was a suppressed or lost section of Torah that was inserted here. I thought, what? A second century rabbi is saying that the Torah has insertions? But we, I'm telling you, we always underestimate the rabbis. They were not fundamentalists. And uh, so apparently, he says it's from another part of the Torah. He says this was a suppressed or hidden part of Torah, and that was inserted here. Another rabbi in that same discussion says, no, it's because this passage is out of place and belongs elsewhere in this portion because it belongs where it says, and the, when it's describing in the previous chapter, when the Levites would carry the ark, it belongs there. So there's a lot of debate, but there's an understanding that these nuns are not the letter nun, but they are a borrowing from Greek scribal traditions to indicate something weird and strange about this insertion. I thought that was amazing. And what they say in this discussion, and this is only amazing to people who are interested in this, but what they say in this discussion is that the reason this section was inserted here, and here's my theory, my amateur theory that I go along with, is to indicate that these two verses are actually a separate scroll, a separate book of Torah. And why do they need that to be so? Because if these represent, if those diacritical marks, those upside down nuns represent a separate piece of Torah, a separate book of Torah, and they describe that you can have a separate scroll with as few as 85 letters, which is how many are represented here, is because uh, in that way, there are not five books of the Torah, but seven. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the first 10 chapters of Numbers, then this, then the last chapters of Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. So why would the Jew, why would this, why would this rabbis, the sages, need to have seven books of Torah? Because in the book of Proverbs, there's a famous line that says, there are seven pillars of wisdom. And for the rabbis of this time period, of the Hellenistic time period, Torah was a synonym for wisdom. Torah and Chochmah are the same thing. So they want to show that the seven pillars of wisdom are equal to the seven books of the Torah. And they find this fascinating way of uh, demarcating Torah so that they can show that Torah and wisdom are the same. Because in the mystical and spiritual tradition of that time, Sophia, wisdom, is the consort of the um of the the creator god and so in rabbinic literature sophia chokhma wisdom becomes known as torah who is with god from before creation and torah begins a feminine character in jewish literature as god's consort god Think sexual here. God creates the world through Torah, and Torah is the blueprint, or shall we say, the um, template, the womb of creation out of which everything springs. Not the written Torah here. The written Torah is the pale uh, reflection of this supernal wisdom that comes to us as Jews through the Torah, but that we have to then look through the Torah to reconnect with the supernal wisdom, and this is early Jewish mysticism, that, uh, that accompanies God. God, the inseminating principle 
but Torah, the, 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 the aspect of the divine that then gestates and produces and gives birth to the world. So as much as, and this goes into a whole discourse about how as much as um, Jewish tradition tries to create a singular God who is masculine, um, we can't pull it off ever because it doesn't, just doesn't make sense based on our experience of how life is created. Uh, so that's a whole beautiful sort of highway of uh, understanding. Let's see, um, Pauline said, maybe that's why it's like a magical incantation almost when we put the Torah away. That's why the hidden idea. But why not the last few words? Did you finish that thought, Pauline? I love that thought. It's an incantation. Yes, there's something incantatory about these verses, isn't there? And by the way, I, I hope you saw Wendy's comment from much earlier, that metaphorically, too, when the cloud lifts in our lives, it perhaps represents the moment when we've gained enough personal understanding to lead us forward. Thank you. Okay, so I wanted to share that fascinating piece with you and now move on unless someone has comments or questions that you wanna ask about this. So anyway, that's my, I'm always, I'm always reading Torah, both as a, fasc, as an, uh, as a student of history, wanting to get at the textual origins and put all the historical pieces together in their era and in their context. And I wanna say again, I am such an amateur. I wish I had time to study Hellenistic civilization because the, the Jewish scholars who have illuminate our rabbinic heritage because we were embedded in that culture, even as we were creating our own separate expression of it. There's so much interplay. Now, but now let's look more at our own lives and our, our own spiritual journeys by looking at this next section. And that's the very next verse, chapter 11, verse one. Thank you. Vayehi ha'am kemit onanim. And when the people complained, or the people took to complaining bitterly. Okay, they're out three days. Okay, <laughs> keep that in mind. Took them three days to lose their um, patience. And, um, you know, I was reading in uh, uh, various, I was reading Paul Krugman's column in the um, New York Times where he cited the famous marshmallow test. Uh, the marshmallow test was a um, psych famous psychological test in the uh, 60s that has since been disputed in substantial and important ways. Uh, but that I think the kernel of it still holds true, which is that if you recall this test, they would put a, a preschooler in a room with two plates. On one plate, there was a marshmallow, and on the other plate, there were like two marshmallows. And uh, the uh, experimenter would say, okay, um, you can eat the one marshmallow anytime you want, um, but I'm going to leave the room. If you can wait till I come back, then you can have the plate with two marshmallows. And it was a test of which kids could delay gratification, could hold off so that they could get the two marshmallows. That's the famous marshmallow test. And um, there are conflicting studies, but uh, a lot of indicators are that the kids who could delay gratification the best had better chances of success in, you know, in school, for example. Uh, it's not rocket science. And um, uh, so that's called the marshmallow test. So 
the children of Israel are terrible. They, com- they continually fail the marshmallow test, right? They cannot delay gratification. They cannot remember that there's a goal that they're trying to attain. They just can't do it. And Paul Krugman was writing about this in terms of our collective ability to continue to uh, do um, what appears to be necessary to flatten the curve of the um, flatten the curve of the uh, uh, coronavirus. Um, it certainly appears that our uh, um, uh, president has almost no ability, as we know, to delay gratification or to, um, in any way, delay gratification. So that with that as our model of leadership, we have a whole children of Israel who are also then unable to remember. Uh, Moses' job is to continually remind them that they need to learn how to delay gratification in order to reach their goal. One might say that would be good leadership or parenting. So the people are complaining bitterly. And uh, we have to remember that we are the children of Israel, right? We're also Moses. You can think of Moses as our um, ego or superego. You can think of the children of Israel as that part of us that is just our unbridled impulses and desire for gratification. The people complained bitterly. And it was the, and it was Rab Oznei Adonai. Uh, it was bad in the ears of God. Yes. Um, by Yishma Adonai, God heard the complaining he was incensed. What's the, that's the word I like to use. Uh, um, ah, the, he was, anger was kindled. That's a good translation too. Because, the fire of the Lord burnt um, among them and consumed them that were on the edges of the camp. So again, think of this not, think of this um, figuratively. Think of, um, uh, think of the fire as, as, as chaos. Uh, there's as dis, utter disorganization because the first 10 chapters of Bamidbar have been censuses, how to camp, what the laws are. So in other words, the whole organization for this journey has been set up. Three, it's, it, the, I didn't read you the chapter of the specific directions about how to march. You might think of this as, no, I might think of this, this is what occurs to me, as a peaceful protest march, right? Where everyone has their instructions for how to control themselves in order to achieve their goal. But this goal is not a, um, this goal is a, a, shall I say, a vague and large goal. You know, transform the system, get justice. These are really big and it's like the divine cloud. It's like, you can't, uh, you can't grab it. You can't eat it. You know what I mean? Um, and yet it's the promised land. It's this promise of a society of justice and peace, right? That is the promised land. And how are you gonna get there when you have to follow these rules? So I'm thinking about, when I was reading this, I was thinking about a well-run and contained protest march. And I was thinking about the looters, who I'm not condemning here, by the way. I'm just, this is not a, this is not a, a moral statement. I'm thinking about the looters as the fire burning at the edges of the camp because they can't wait, we can't wait. We want it now, we are done. I'm fed up, I'm tired, give me what's mine. Okay, and that brings us to the next verse because that's how it is described.
Um, oh, I'm sorry, I went all the way through verse six, Gwen. Thanks. Um, and uh, there, and his anger was kindled. I'm up in verse, uh, I'm up at the top there, that's right. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord and the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord. So the fire abated. It was um, uh, tishka, it was, it was uh, put out. And so Moses called the name of the place Tabera, which comes from the root Leva'er, which means to burn. It became because the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them. So here, imagine the march, the march towards the promised land. They've spent a long time preparing. They're all in their formation. They have their instructions, the Torah. And yet, they can't pull it off. That's true of any of us as we set goals that we know are for our greatest purpose and then can't get there because something distracts us or we can't tolerate it anymore or we lose our patience or we, we are the children of Israel. This is the journey towards the promised land. That is why the metaphor animates us right up to today, right through the civil rights movement and right up to today. And because uh, then it says, and the mixed multitude, oh, look at that beautiful old translation there in English. Uh, the Hebrew word is also um, onomatopoeia, mixed multitude. The Hebrew is asafsuf, the rabble, the, who are, who is this asafsuf? We don't really know. Um, the, but the rabble, the mixed multitude, that was among them, asher bekirbo, which can also be translated, that was within them. Hit'avu ta'ava. They felt a lusting. And uh, um, uh, let's see, how else does that get translated? A gluttonous craving. In other words, an almost irresistible urge. That's what uh, ta'ava is. When you're about to eat in Hebrew, you say, but te'avon, good appetite. Te'avon is appetite. They felt an appetite. Um, and, um, and they came by a shuvu vayivku Israel. And so the children of Israel joined into this. What are we talking about? When you light a match and everything catches on fire? That's what a riot is. That's what, you know, that's what peer pressure is. That's what, it's all, that's what we're describing here. So all the children of Israel, I love this, started crying. <laughs> they started to cry, poor babies. And they said, we want meat. We want to eat meat. What? Bigger lusting is there, appetite is there than that. And then they say this completely ridiculous line. Listen to this. The harnu, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt for free. The cucumbers, oh, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Okay, what was going on in Egypt? Do you remember? But that's not how it works for us, right? That's not how we work. It's like, I want to go home. It's in, it has no foundation in um, uh, anything other than, I can't do this. It has to stop now. They're crying and saying, we want meat. And oh, we remember all the goodies we ate in Egypt. And they've lost it. They've absolutely lost it. Our soul is dried up, our gullet. There's nothing at all. 
besides this uh, manna before our eyes. Okay, so they have this strange food called manna. They have this strange food called manna, um, which uh, uh, appears on the ground in the morning and is something that they don't know what it is. It's a, like mystery food that nourishes them, but um, it's also a test of their faith on the journey because they have to collect it every morning and then they can eat for that day, but they never have enough to save over for the next day. So it's man is a whole other beautiful analogy towards what it means to walk in the world without hoarding. Um, but I, I didn't want to travel that way today. I wanted to stay with these complaints. Um, it says, uh, let's go on a little further uh, and then I'll, I'll, Moses now loses it. Uh, this is verse 10 and uh, verses 10 to 15. Thank you. It says, Moses heard the people weeping. Keep going. Keep going. There we go. Moses heard the people weeping. Every family. Um, every person in the opening of their tent. And God was really pissed, and so was Moses. Ah, here's a different translation. And then, this is a famous speech of Moses's that I talk about every year, which I'm not going to focus on today. Uh, which says, and Moses said to Yodhevafe, why have you dealt so ill with your servant? Why don't you like me anymore that you've placed the burden of this entire people on me? So Moses has a meltdown. Uh, Roni said, are we supposed to admire these people? No, precisely not. We are supposed to put ourselves in their place and understand that this is a story about us and what we need to overcome in order to reach the promised land. The children of Israel are not our heroes, they're us. That's how to read the Torah. It's a book about us. If we read it as an historical book solely, then it's a dead letter and has basically almost no value to our lives. Um, what was the food source for the year the people were camped at Sinai? It was also manna, Roberta. Um, okay, so I was saying, Moses is having a meltdown. He says, did I conceive this people? Did I give birth to them? But now you say to me, carried in your bosom like a nursing parent carries a suckling child to the soil which you swore to their fathers? Where am I gonna get meat to give this entire people? Moses is having a complete meltdown. When they cry on me saying, give us meat so we may eat, I can't do this myself. Here, scroll up a little bit, Gwen. I need to go higher. I need to go to verses 13 to 15. No, 11, 13 to 15. You mean lower, okay. You, you, yeah, sorry, there we go. Where am I gonna get meat for all these people when they cry to me saying, give us meat? And then he says, I'm not able myself alone to carry this entire people. It's too heavy for me. Uh, if you're gonna deal this way with me, just kill me, Moses says. If I found favor in your eyes, so I don't have to like see this, do this anymore. Moses completely loses and said, God, so picture a complete meltdown now. The riffraff, that's looting on the edges of the tent. Now everybody's lost control. And the leader feels absolutely hopeless and saying, just kill me. I can't do this. 
I quit. That's what's going on at this moment in the Torah. Um, but I just wanted to share with you that passage, but now I want to go back a little bit um, to this idea of um, the, the inability that so many of us have to remain disciplined with our eyes on the prize. Um, oh, it's supposed to be funny, Joan. It's uh, the, um, think of this, uh, there's no reason why the Torah wouldn't be funny, except that we've learned to think of it as the Bible and the word of the Lord. This is the literature of our people. And the metaphor of Moses and God as the mother and father, as the parents and the children of Israel, as the children of Israel animates a lot of the descriptions of the journey through the wilderness. So if it was being written today, it would happen in a minivan. And uh, they'd pull into a rest stop and the parents would have a giant fight. And the kids would be saying, we wanna go home. And they'd forget someone in the bathroom. And you know, it's like, that's what's going on here. I'm not, I didn't, I didn't give birth to them. Why should I have to carry them the whole way? No, so that's what's going on, and it is funny. And that's why I love the passage so much, among many reasons. But what I want to focus on again is that part of what it means to build a, a successful life, a functioning family, a just society, is we have to keep our eyes on the prize. This is like a lifetime of learning for each of us. I'm so much better at it now. And I'm, so maybe I'm getting a C now instead of a D minus um, at remembering when there's tension in my home to say, I don't have to react. I know these people a long time. I got the picture. I'll wait until I've collected myself and then we'll have a conversation, right? That's being an adult um, in my opinion. Uh, not spewing, not venting my spleen at every opportunity. It's almost as though the, uh, the internet is an incredible opportunity to abandon that kind of restraint that isn't about stuffing your feelings. It's about thinking about how to keep your eye on the prize. Is the goal division or unity? Is the goal justice for all? Is the goal a good society? Is the goal... If that's the prize, then it's a long journey, everybody. It's a long journey. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So I wanted to, so here are the people, in my opinion, saying, how long? How long? And I watched... Um, the movie Selma on TV the other night, which I'll recommend to everyone to watch and then watch again. Um, and uh, the march from Montgomery, from, from Selma to Montgomery. And uh, the analogy for me of this precisely, precisely this kind of journey away from security, even if it's your your oppressive, sharecropped, you know, perpetually indebted and never equal life. But hey, there was uh, onions and garlic. You know, and now what? Um, and what it means to leave Egypt and go to the promised land and what it takes internally to keep going. That's certainly the metaphor that Martin Luther King uh, and so many in his community embodied and embraced. And it wasn't easy, for God's sake. It was death-defyingly difficult. And it wasn't a smooth journey. There were fires breaking out in the fringes of the camp all the time. Uh, so I want to I want to ask Gwen to put up a page I prepared with a couple of readings that'll bring us towards our end.
Okay. Psalm 13. Okay, this is an ancient psalm. For the leader, a psalm of David. Now remember, the psalms are also not philosophical tracts. The psalms are the language of the heart. <clears throat> if there is a mood you are in, you will find a psalm that will reflect your mood. Okay, it's King David traditionally pouring his heart out to his maker. That's what the Psalms are. Uh, oh, also see tr Just Mercy, in addition to watching Selma. Definitely watch Just Mercy and read the book also. Brian Stevenson is a current day inheritor of Martin Luther King. So here's the cry of the heart from Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you ignore me forever? Ad Anna, how long will you hide your face from me? Ad Anna, how long oops, will I have cares on my mind, grief in my heart all day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Look at me, answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the luster to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him and my foes exult when I totter. But as for me, I trust in your faithfulness. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord for God has been good to me. It's an incredible piece of poetry. And now I'm gonna ask Gwen to scroll down and listen to this excerpt from King. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said these words on the steps of the Alabama State House in Montgomery at the conclusion of the march from Selma to Montgomery, March 25th, 1965. The whole speech is amazing. I just have the excerpt here. I know you are asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men, darken their understanding? and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne. That's what I'm talking about. Everything's a biblical reference for King, but you have to know your Bible. This goes back to wisdom sitting on the throne next to God in the book of Proverbs. Somebody's asking, when will wounded justice, lying prostrate on the streets of Selma and Birmingham and communities all over the South, be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men. That's also from Psalm 86. Somebody's asking, when will the radiant star of hope be plunged against the nocturnal bosom of this lonely night, plucked from weary, weary souls with chains of fear and the manacles of death? How long will justice be crucified and truth buried? This is all a riff on Psalm 86, which I didn't put, because he's doing the how long from Psalm 13 and the justice and truth cast to the ground from Psalm 86. I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long because you shall reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Then he sings glory, glory, hallelujah, recites it. I'm sharing this with you because the children of Israel in our portion are saying, how long? How much longer? And they've only gone three days. And then Moses, after his meltdown, continues to encourage them and lead them, right? Moses doesn't give up. 
But if you read King's diaries, there were plenty of moments when he wanted to give up. It's tough being a person. It's even tougher trying to lead people, right? So King, so then the psalmist, King David, expresses this idea of how long, how long, how are we going to last 40 years? How long till we bend our way towards this promised idea? You know, King says in his final speech in 68, I may not get there, but we will get to the promised land. I may not get there. You may not get there. So who is this we, right? This beautiful idea that we will get there. That's the Jewish hope. That's the hope of faith. How long we cry out. Think of all the people. This is what inspired me this morning. Think of all the people now tearing down Confederate statues, walking, getting on their knees in the streets and raising their hands up saying, how long? Willing to put their necks and their lives out there. And we're in a moment of change. Even if there are things you disagree with, and there will be many things to disagree with about things that these protesters say and do, to exclude yourself from this moment is questionable to me. We can build coalitions with people who may not understand us yet and who may still disagree with us. This isn't, uh, we need to study and understand deeply the profound intersection between anti-Semitism and uh, white nationalism uh, and, and, black, and, anti, and, race, and, black, and racism against black people. There's so much to learn and understand. But if we put ourselves on the sidelines right now, um, I question those choices. And we'll be writing in other, I'll be writing in other um, forums how we can each might choose to participate in this moment when hopefully justice will be advanced a few more steps on this perennial chessboard, on this journey through the wilderness that we're all on, on this vision that we first articulated, that life is a journey from bondage to liberation from degradation to dignity, as the Haggadah says, and from a lack of autonomy to a just and autonomous and moral society, from tyranny to justice. This is what Jewish people articulate in our Torah. That is the fundamental journey we're taking, whether it's a journey of our own souls or a journey of our collective intention. So if you'd scroll back up to the transliteration. Set to music. I have to find the key, just a moment. There it is. Um, I just learned this melody um, written by an Israeli musician named uh, Yonatan Razel. If you learn it and want to sing along with me, it's beautiful. It says, but as for me, I trust in your faithfulness. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. And I will sing to the Lord, for God has been good to me. Or, we shall overcome someday. Deep in my heart, 
I do believe this is the sentiment of this line in the psalm. Vani bechastecha vatachti yageli bi bishuatecha vani bechastecha gaalti vatachti yageli bi bishuatecha. Ashir Ashira la donna, Ashira la donna, Ashira la donna, Bahani vechastecha, Kavatachti, Yageli bi, Bishuatecha, Bahani vechastecha, Batachti, Yageli bi bishuatecha, Vahani vechastecha, Vatachti, Yageli bi bishuatecha, Ashira la donna, Ashira la donna, Ashira la donna, la Ashira la donna, 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 la Ashira la donna, Ashira la donna, Ashira la donna, Ikamahalala. So I want to bless us in our lives to be able to keep the long view, to follow that mysterious, evanescent cloud that is our ideals and our vision of how the world could be, to dedicate our appetites, our drive, our longings, not to instant gratification, but to the pursuit of our highest goals, May this be true in each of our own lives, and not at the expense of pleasure, by the way. We can discern when a pleasure is part of that journey. We're talking about losing our ability to defer gratification. If we don't have a vision 
We don't know what to follow. And yet the vision is not something that you can hold on to because it's always directing us in a kind of, you know, it's like hitching your wagon to a cloud. It's like, how do we learn to follow this? How do we discern? All of this is the journey through the wilderness. And I can't imagine a more important time for us to keep our eye on the prize. Judaism describes this prize to us. We know what the promised land promises. We may never get there and yet. That's our job. That's why King is such an inspiration to me because he was a prophet of this very vision for the 20th century and hopefully beyond. Thank you for letting me share all that.